0: You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Minor Prophets is a collection of writings in the Bible. There's 12 books, and uh, these they, they are represented of, of, of 12 different prophets. And today we're talking about Zechariah, which is the second to last book. So we're almost done. We're almost finished with this series. If you are relatively new to reading the Bible, or if you maybe just never read the Minor Prophets before, uh, if you just avoid reading passages kind of like that, you might be sort of confused by Zechariah. Because uh, Zechariah is a little bit strange to modern readers. Uh, you might do a few double takes while reading it, and you might go, is this the Bible? Like this sounds, It doesn't sound like the Bible. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, I was reading through Zechariah with, with Van Kim, my wife, and uh, she made the comment, I feel like I'm in the American Visionary Art Museum. And if you've never been there, it's in Fed Hill, go check it out. Uh, the whole time, at least for me, w- when you're there, you're always asking, what in the world is going on? Like, what is this thing? What does this mean? And I, I felt like that a little bit, too, when I was reading Zechariah. Um, there are all these visions and these oracles and... And, and they have, there's talking about lampstands and angels and scrolls and horses and chariots. And, uh, but if you spend some time reading it, really dig into it, you'll see one common theme show up again over and over. And that is this idea that God wants to restore the world. God wants to restore the world. One of the major themes of the book is the restoration of God, and all of these visions and oracles that are going on, they center around this idea that God is in the process of restoring his creation. Uh, so let's pray before we dive in. Father, we thank you so much um, for this opportunity to read and to learn about you and your plan of restoration through this book of Zechariah. May you speak through my words. May you open up the eyes of our hearts that we may receive and understand um, what you want to reveal to us today. God, we also want to pray for our country and um, some of the things that happened this weekend. Uh, we pray um, that you would bring healing. We recognize that our country is broken and divided and hateful and afraid and proud. Um, we pray that you would heal us with the power of your gospel. We pray that you would bring restoration through your church. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. There's this video I watched uh, on YouTube recently, and it's entitled, Little Boy Tries to Pick Up Tennis Balls. And if you ever get the chance, look it up. Little Boy Tries to Pick Up Tennis Balls. It's pretty hilarious. There's this kid, and he has this uh, cylindrical tennis ball container, and there's a bunch of tennis balls on the ground. And he, he goes around, and he picks one up, and he sticks it in his container and he goes to pick another one up, but he, he lowers his container like this, so this one falls out. And he does this over and over for, for about a minute or so. And uh, he makes zero progress, because he puts one in and falls out, puts one in and falls out. And, um, and I, I was just thinking about that, and I was thinking, that's like my life. I feel like that all the time. Um, I feel like I'm doing one thing, and then I'm back at square one, I'm doing it again, I'm back at square one. I don't know if you relate to that, I mean, there's plenty of examples I can think of. One simple example is eating. Okay, I eat, and I do random things, and I grow hungry, and so I have to eat again, and I do random things, I grow hungry, and I have to eat again. Or, or sleeping, we do that. We sleep, we rejuvenate, and then we do random things, we grow tired, so we have to sleep again, and then we go through random things, and we, we sleep again, and, or we make money, and then we do random things, and then we realize we don't have as much money, and so we have to make more money, and then we realize we don't have as much money. And so we go through this process in, all, in almost all aspects of life. It's this never-ending cycle. And, uh, and I want to ask, why do we do stuff like that? Why do we do stuff like that? I think it's because we all long for restoration. And what I mean by restoration is restoration is this idea of we want to return to our original status. We, at one point, we had the status, this position, uh, you can describe it uh, as, re- this was right, this was good, this was secure, this is complete. And then we lost that state somehow, uh, just through the natural order of things. Things fall apart, we lose that, and then we want to return to that status or that position. For example, we eat food in order to restore our bodies physically. Um, in fact, I learned this recently, the word restaurant and the word restore, they have the same root word, because a restaurant is where you go to restore yourself physically. And, um, and why do we go to the doctor? We want to be medically restored. Why do we go to psychiatrists or counseling? We want to be psychologically restored. Why do we uh, go to home improvement stores or why do we do chores? We want our houses to be structurally or aesthetically restored. We're always trying to do things to restore things. Um, but things naturally fall apart. And so what happens is, uh, the, the human body, it does not become naturally more and more full. It becomes naturally more and more hungry. So you have to do things so that it becomes full again. And the, the kitchen floor does not naturally become more and more clean. It becomes naturally more and more dirty. So you have to do things to make it clean. You know, it, Your hair does not naturally become more and more neat. It becomes more and more unkempt. So you have to get haircuts and things like that. right? And so, So this is what we do. We go about our lives... And then uh, we fall apart, and then we sense that things are falling apart, so we do things to make things more orderly, and more put together, and more neat, and more complete, and then we go about our lives again, and then things fall apart again, and then we realize that, and so we go through this process of making things more orderly, and whatever it is, it's eating, or getting a haircut, or doing chores, or making money, eating a snack, you know, we do all these things over and over, and we're going through this process continually of these mini-restorations, and, uh, however, there, there are many restorations because none of them bring complete permanent restoration. All of them are, all of these things that we do are temporary. In other words, we restore these things and they fall apart and we have to restore them again. So, what is the point? It's just like this little kid with the tennis balls, right? We do these things and then they fall apart and we have to do these things again. Or, in or, some of us, I want to suggest we engage with this at a bigger level, an even larger level. Uh, for example, some of us, we want to protect the environment, and so we go through these restora- restoration processes over and over again where we pick up trash, we recycle, we compost, we do all these things. Sometimes we pick up other people's trash, and, and, but then things keep building up, and it's, sometimes it seems like it never ends, but we want to engage in this restoration process. Or some of us, maybe it's at a, a geopolitical, social level where there are things we notice that we think are wrong in society and we feel that they are unrestored. So we engage somehow to make things restored. Maybe it's voting, maybe it's getting involved in town halls or uh, PTA meetings at school, or maybe it's uh, raising awareness over social media or on the streets or whatever. We do these things because we long for restoration. And sometimes when you're involved in these things long enough, you might start to wonder, is there a point to all of this? Does this matter? I feel like I'm just doing the same things over and over again but it seems like I'm getting nothing done. There's zero progress. I want to suggest that all of these things that we do are attempts to mimic God's restoration. All of these things that we do are attempts to mimic God's restoration. In fact, all, the reason why we do all these things is because there is this deep, ingrained longing inside us for God's restoration, We long for, we desire this ultimate restoration that only God provides. Our lives are so oriented that we long for this so much that we do these things to glimpse that, to get these little mini glimpses of that restoration, to get us closer to that final restoration, the final resting place. And in Zechariah, God paints a picture of what this final restoration looks like. And it isn't temporary like our attempts at restoration. It's permanent. It's complete and it's perfect. So throughout this book, God is giving Zechariah these glimpses into what he's doing. And he's sort of weaving this great tapestry. And it's a little bit confusing because it seems like he's doing things not in chronological order and a little bit all over the place. Uh, But he's painting this picture of a permanent, complete, perfect restoration. And today we'll be exploring that tapestry. What does God's restoration look like? What is this thing that we are actually aiming and headed towards? So we're going to read through Zechariah, and as we do this, I want to highlight three big dimensions of restoration, and these things are sort of overlaid and spread out throughout the whole book, but I'm going to mention three things. This is what restoration looks like. Number one, God will be king. Number two, people will be secure. And number three, sin will be defeated. So those are the big three things that we'll be talking about. So number one, God will be king. So I want to encourage you to try to put yourselves in the shoes of Zechariah's audience, um, so this is, uh, just to give some context, hundreds of years before Zechariah stepped on the scene, God had established, himself for, uh, established for himself a people, the Israelites. And the Israelites, there was to be a holy nation, a people devoted to God. And God was to be their king. However, the Israelites, they rejected God as king. And um, hundreds of, fast forward to several hundred years later, the, the kingdom split up into two. And both of those kingdoms got conquered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and in Jerusalem, their hometown, their, their their place where they were supposed to gather, was decimated. Um, and so, put yourself in the shoes of this people, um, and Zechariah, just to give you some, some more context, Zechariah, he was among a few people who the Persians came, and they actually, the Persians allowed some of these Israelites to return to their homeland, and Zechariah was one of these people, so... They return to their homeland, but they see Jerusalem and it's totally destroyed, okay? So, here, God talking to you, uh, and you're just Zechariah's cronies. Zechariah 9, 9-13. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And just to give you some more context, Zion is synonymous with Jerusalem uh, in the Bible. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. And so, uh, just to interrupt myself, God is saying, Your king is coming, and this isn't any king, this is a righteous and humble king, in contrast to many of the, the Israelite kings of old who did bad things. And this king will bring salvation, and, and fast forward several hundred years, this actually is fulfilled later when Jesus rides on a donkey into Jerusalem the week before he's crucified. Uh, Jesus the king. He also did the same thing, humble the Mount on Zaki. So I'll continue reading verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, war will be no more. You won't need things like bows and arrows anymore. The king will bring peace. The land will be large and prosperous. Verse 11. And as for you also... Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. In other words, you will not be imprisoned or enslaved anymore. You'll be free. You'll be restored. Verse 13, For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Greece was one of the big threatening powers at the time. And wield you like a warrior's sword. So, in other words, when enemies like Greece will attack us, when they're on the front lines about to invade us, we will be strong. We'll stand firm. And so, this is a king that Zechariah talks about who will bring righteousness, peace, freedom, and power. And this is the king that the Israelites they've been longing for. This is the king who will bring restoration. And who is this king? Uh, God makes this very clear in Zechariah fourteen nine. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and His name one. And so Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, right now, they're very divided, not unified, destroyed. And God is saying, we will be one, and I will be your king. In this future restoration, God will be the king over all the earth. And why is this fact important for restoration? What does God being king have to do with restoration? Because... When God is not king over all the earth, that's when things are unrestored. That's when things fall apart. But when God is king over all the earth, that's when the process of restoration happens. When the world does not recognize God as her king, the world installs other things or other people as kings. And when other people or other things rule as king, things fall apart. Because those things, those people, they're never meant to be king. When other people rule, they do not rule with the goodness of God. And so instead of righteousness, there is sin. Instead of peace, there is conflict. Instead of freedom, there is slavery. Instead of power, there is powerlessness. And that's the natural order of things when God is not king. And so when the nation of Israel, God's holy nation, chose to reject God as their literal king and appoint a human king, things fell apart. And we likewise, when we choose to reject God, as our literal king when we point other things or other people as our king, things also fall apart. And I want to just encourage you to ask yourself, who or what do you sometimes make king of your heart? Some of us, we look to our parents or our loved ones as our king, uh, in, meaning we give so much to these people, we give all these expectations to these people, we expect these people to meet our problems, to satisfy our needs. Some of us, we look to an addiction, uh, as our king. Maybe it's drugs or alcohol or video games or uh, pornography. We look to these things to meet these needs that we feel that we have. Um, some of us, we look to certain politicians or political parties or, or non-profit organizations or social movements as our king. Meaning we, we, we have this mentality, if only this person was elected or if only this happened, the world would be a better place. And we, we put all of our eggs in this basket and we dedicate all of our lives to this effort. But the thing is, none of these things were meant to be king. None of these things have the ability to fix everything that is wrong in our lives, in our society, because none of these things can rule with the goodness of God. And when we install these things as our king, our lives fall apart. Um, Earlier, we talked about how all of these, we do all of these little different things to try to enact or create restoration in our lives, and there are many. Uh, temporary versions of God's restoration. Well, the first step to a perfect, permanent restoration is to make God king of your life. That is the first step to 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 come close to this permanent, complete restoration. In this life, we will all install various things to be king in our lives uh, at some point or another. And the Bible refers to these things as idols. Our ultimate allegiance in this life will go back and forth, you know, between God and these idols. And I think that's the way things work. That's the natural order of things. But Zechariah, he refers to a future, a future day of complete and perfect restoration where idols will be no more and when God will be king forever. This is Zechariah Zechariah 13, 2. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness One day, all of our idols, they'll be remembered no more. And God, the one true king, will rule over the whole earth. But, and this is sort of the tricky thing about Zechariah, throughout this book, he's talking about the future, and he's also talking about the present. God, the one true king, is ruling even now. Yes, God will rule one day, but God has already started his rule in our hearts. It hasn't been complete yet, But the way God rules work right, God's rule is, the way it works right now is it starts in individual hearts, and over time it is expanding so that it will one day take over the whole earth. And so, if you want God to be king over the world, it starts with God being king over your heart, and it's you just saying to God, I want to be a living foreshadowing, a living example of your future rule by allowing you to rule my heart. And so I encourage you to ask God to be king of your heart. And when you do, you will experience glimpses, not complete, but glimpses, versions of righteousness, of peace, of freedom, of power, and of restoration. So that's the first aspect of restoration. God will be king unless God is king. True and permanent restoration cannot happen. Here's number two. Another dimension about God's restoration is that people will be secure. Much of life in Zechariah's day was filled with instability and insecurity and you know, the Israelites, they were living under a foreign occupation. Uh, they were scattered across an enemy empire. There are threats of war, threats of violence all around. So once again, put yourselves in, in the shoes of these people. And here, Zechariah ten six through 12. I will strengthen Judah and save the tribes of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them. They will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. The Ephraimites, synonymous with the Israelites... Will become like warriors, and their hearts will be glad as with wine. Their children will see it and be joyful. Their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. I will signal for them and gather them in. Surely I will redeem them. They will be as numerous as before. And then, catch this Though I scatter them among the peoples, yet in distant lands they will remember me. They and the children will survive. Then they will return. I will bring them back from Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to Gilead and Lebanon, and there will, be no, there will not be room enough for them. They will pass through the sea of trouble, this urgency will be subdued and all the depths of the Nile will dry up. A serious pride will be brought down. these are all enemies, and Egypt's scepter will pass away. I will strengthen them in the Lord and in His name they will live securely. So God is saying, declares the Lord. God is saying that He will bring all of these people back from all these places where they were scattered. And they will return to their homeland and they will dwell securely and their enemies will no longer be threatening. The people will be joyful and numerous and strong. The people will be restored. And so that's the picture. And and Zechariah expands on this concept a little bit more in in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Then I looked up, this is one of the visions we talked about, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. While the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and that will be its glory within. As I mentioned earlier, Jerusalem, God's holy city, had been destroyed and decimated. But here, Zechariah, he sees this vision of a man. He's trying to measure Jerusalem with his measuring line. And essentially, the angel says, Don't even try. Don't even try to measure this because it's so, it's so, it's so wide and it's so long. And it's going to be without walls. And in this other words, he's saying Jerusalem will be a city without walls because there's so many people, there's so many animals in it. Jerusalem will be so numerous and so populated that it won't even have walls. It won't even be able to, the walls won't be able to contain the people of Jerusalem. And this vision stands in stark contrast with present day Jerusalem. I mean, uh, in, in Zechariah's day. Because that Jerusalem was destroyed and decimated. And catch in particular what God says in verse 5. I myself will be a wall of fire around it. And I love that imagery. Today we don't think about walls very much. Baltimore doesn't really have a wall around it. We have Fort McHenry. But it's just a fort. And it's not even. It's a museum. Okay, You can't do much there. Uh, But back in those days. Walls were really important. Walls provided protection and fortification. Uh, And that's why there's a whole book of the Bible, Nehemiah, that's about a guy building walls, okay? Walls are very important back in those days. And so when God says, I myself will be a wall, a fire around it, he is promising, I will be your security. I will be your protection. I will be your fortification. And I want to ask, can you imagine God saying something like that to Baltimore? Many of us, we live in Baltimore. uh, And Baltimore was never destroyed uh, the way Jerusalem was. I learned about that in Fort McHenry, uh, how we fought them off. But we, we definitely have our fair share of problems, right? We, um, Baltimore has its issues, and sometimes we don't feel safe living here. We, uh, some of us were concerned about crime. Some of us were concerned about drugs. Sometimes we were, some of us were concerned about negative influences for our kids. Some of us were concerned about the school systems. We're concerned about all sorts of things in Baltimore, well, this promise that God has given to Jerusalem, we can claim that promise too. That God wants to be a wall of fire around Baltimore. Are you concerned about your own security? Maybe it's just living in Baltimore. It's physical security. Maybe you're afraid that something will happen to you, something will happen to your loved ones. Or maybe it's financial security. Maybe you're afraid that you you, you maybe you live paycheck to paycheck. You're afraid that you won't last next month. Maybe it's emotional security. Maybe... Somebody hurt you before. You're afraid to trust people again. Regardless, we all have insecurities somehow. We're afraid that something will happen. We feel unsafe sometimes. We feel nervous sometimes. We feel anxious sometimes. And if that's us, I want you to read this passage again. Verse 5. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. And I will be its glory within. Take that to God. Because God wants to be a wall of fire around you. God wants to bring restoration to you. Number three, how does God accomplish this? How does God become king again? How does His people begin to feel secure? The only way is through the defeat of sin. So that's number three. Sin will be defeated. You see, the reason why restoration is needed at all, the reason why restoration is necessary, is because sin exists. Sin created a world in which things fall apart. Before sin, things didn't fall apart. But because of sin, now things fall apart. In, an order, in order for restoration to be perfect and permanent, sin needs to be removed. That's the root issue that needs to be addressed. It would just be like our temporary attempts. If sin wasn't removed, and if God only addressed the consequences of sin, like suffering and pain and brokenness, if God only addressed that but not sin itself, then it would just be like our temporary attempts of, of, of putting tennis balls in these containers and having them fall out again. In order to achieve achieve an ultimate permanent restoration, God needs to deal with not just the consequences of sin, but with sin itself. And so there's this fascinating passage I love in Zechariah 3. And in this passage, God sees another vision about this high priest named Joshua. And in this passage, God makes clear how he's going to defeat sin. And, And I want to point out two things about how he's defeating sin. So check this out, chapter 3. Then he showed me, Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. It is not the man, a burning snake, a burning stick, snatched from the fire. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. And I'll put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him. While the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among those standing here. So this is what's going on. In this vision, we see Joshua standing before God and Satan standing before God. And Satan's a bad guy, okay? And Satan is accusing Joshua of all the things that he's done. And then, God rebukes Satan. And then, what did you catch what he does? He takes off Joshua's dirty clothes and gives him clean clothes. Okay? He removes, in other words, he removes the grounds of Satan's accusations. He takes away Joshua's sins so that Satan cannot accuse Joshua anymore. And so, that's the first thing I want to point out about the way God removes sins. The sins that identify you no longer identify you, but they are taken away. The sins that identify you no longer identify you, but they are taken away. And you can call this personal transformation, the transformation of the person, so that when God, when Satan looks at you, he no longer sees the sin. And when God looks at you, he no longer sees you in sin because you're clean now. Okay, You are personally changed, personally made clean. Okay, And it is another dimension I want to point out to God taking away sin. This isn't just a picture of one person becoming clean and, and I'm going to keep reading. This is, so we just finished verse 7. We're going to keep, we're going to continue Zechariah 3 verse 8. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates stand seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. And, and so catch this, God is calling Joshua and his associates in verse 8, men symbolic of things to come. In other words, Joshua is, you're not the final story. There's something going on after you, you're, you're not just this isolated storyline, okay? You're meant, to, you're meant to point to something in the future. Uh, I'll keep reading. I'm going to bring my servant the branch, okay? I'm going to unpack this a little bit because... So, Zechariah's audience, they would have known this, that Isaiah and Jeremiah and a bunch of other prophets, they talked often about this future branch, And the first of this branch is a king who would rule in righteousness and peace and justice. And verse 9. See, the stone I have laid in front of Joshua, there are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. I will remove the, the, the sin of this land in a single day. So, here's what's going on. God's not just in the business of removing sins of individuals. God's in the business of removing... The sin of this land. In other words, God's not just removing Satan's ability to, uh, to accuse individuals of sin. God's removing Satan's power and influence over creation altogether. And this is very different. Because he's not just battling sin at a personal, individual level. He is battling sin at the institutional, structural, cosmic level. You can call this creation transformation, the transformation of creation. So when we think about sin, sometimes we think about sin as, oh, this person is very hateful, this person is very proud, this person is very lustful, this person lies a lot. But, that's, this, but sin is bigger than that. There is sin at a structural institutional level. There's things like economic inequality, things like social prejudice, things like environmental Pollution and, and all of these things are related to sin. And so God's saying, I'm not just going to deal with your personal hatred of that person and your tendency to lie. I'm going to deal with the whole package. I'm going to be addressing sin, the sin of this land. Um, and how does God do all of that? How does God address the sin of this land, both at the personal level and the creation level? He does that through Jesus. Personal transformation and creation transformation don't happen naturally. Permanent, true restoration, they don't happen naturally. What is natural is for things to fall apart. What is natural is for things to continue their current state of affairs and for things to fall apart. In order for things to transform, in order for true restoration to happen, there needs to be a divine restoration, a divine intervention, and that is Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he showed he was not just a king, He was a priest. What does a priest do? He makes sacrifices on the on behalf of the people. And so, when Jesus came, he was a priest too. He made sacrifices on behalf of the people. But it wasn't just any random sacrifice; it was himself. When Jesus died on the cross, he became the true high priest, the one who atoned for the sins of the people, not by only making a sacrifice, but by becoming a sacrifice. When Joshua, and by the way, this is just a fun fact: Joshua and Jesus, those words. The same words in Hebrew, okay? Same names in Hebrew. When Joshua was given clean clothes, Jesus took on dirty clothes. Jesus gave away his clothes so that he was stripped naked. And when Joshua was given a clean turban, Jesus was given a crown of thorns. And so Joshua received cleanness. He received the removal of sins because Jesus took on that dirtiness and he took on that sin. And why did Jesus do that? In order to restore the world. In order to create a place where Jesus is king, where the people are secure, and sin is defeated. And that's where we are headed. And then it's not all. After Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead, and he showed that death itself was defeated. In other words, there is a falling apartness okay, in creation, in the world, and perhaps the purest form of this falling apartness, the most obvious form, the... the, the the epitome of this falling apartness is that people die. And Jesus took even that away. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, He showed once and for all this falling apartness of reality, the way things go and how things fall apart and have to be restored again, that can be stopped. Because I rise from the dead. And so when He did that, He's saying true, permanent, complete restoration can happen. And so that when we go through mini-restorations and when we go through over and over like things like, man, I told my kid yesterday this thing and they're doing it again or man, I made money last week and I lost it all and so I have to make more or I'm trying so hard to advocate for this cause but it seems like nothing's happened when we go through this process of mini-restoration after mini-restoration after mini-restoration we can look at Jesus' resurrection and we can go that is proof, that is affirmation that my attempts are not in vain because the future is clear, the future is bright and I have hope one day things one day God will be king, people will be secure, and sin will be defeated and my attempts are little glimpses, little foreshadowing, and little steps along that process Jesus' resurrection is a resounding yes to the question: does this matter when we go through this process and we go and we fail and we And we don't fail, but it seems like things are failing. It seems like things are falling apart. And we go through that process over and over and over, just like this kid picking up tennis balls. When we go through that process over and over, and we wonder, does this matter? What's the point? Why am I even trying? Jesus' resurrection is a resounding answer to that question. Jesus is saying, it matters because I am restoring the world. So what do we do? We know that restoration is coming. Do we just wait idly until it happens? No. The promise of God's future resurrection through Jesus should spur us on toward that goal. Jesus' resurrection is the is the start of that process, and Jesus' and, and the future resurrection of total complete uh, of complete perfect restoration. That that is the, the completion of that process, but the middle of that process is us. The church is the continuation of that process. Zechariah 13, verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to to cleanse them from sin and impurity. There's a fountain being opened right now. Today is that day. That day is already here. The process of cleansing from sin and impurity is already happening. And the question is, how do you participate in that process? And we can participate in that process, this elimination of sin, removal of sin process. But number one, eliminating sin in ourselves. And number two, eliminating sin in the world. It's as simple as that. Number one, eliminating sin in ourselves. Number two, eliminating sin in the world. First off, we need to eliminate sin in ourselves. Maybe some of you here, you feel like Joshua the high priest. Maybe Satan is standing before God accusing you of sin. Pointing out this long laundry list of things that you have done. Maybe it's something you've done a long time ago, and it, it just keeps you up at night. It gnaws it at your conscience. Or maybe it's something you do right now. It's this repetitive sin that you just do over and over. It feels like it's just part of who you are, and you can't control it. Regardless, if that's you, you don't feel free from the sin, hear this. God wants to make you clean. God wants to remove your dirty clothes and give you clean clothes. God wants to eliminate that sin. And God wants to make you clean. And the way you are clean is you stand before God and you experience this transformation that God gave to Joshua. And the way you experience that is you confess your sin. You say, God, here are my dirty clothes. Here is all the dirtiness that I have. And you trust the fact that Jesus took your sin. Jesus took on your dirty clothes and he killed it. And he died on the cross to show that he killed it. There's a scene in The Dark Knight Rises. I love The Dark Knight Rises. Um toward the end of the movie, where there's an atom bomb. It's about to go off. It's about to destroy the city. And what does Batman do? He takes this atom bomb and he, he hooks it onto the bat, which is this airplane, helicopter thing. And he flies it over the ocean and it, it sets off in the middle of the ocean. Right? And, uh, and what that shows was so there was a city and they were about to be destroyed. And when Batman does, he, he took that sin Symbolically, okay. He took that sin out of the city and he set it off and he died doing it. Right? And that's what Jesus did with us. There was sin in our lives, he took it away, he took it upon himself, and he died. There is one difference in the Dark Knight Rises, it was shown that Batman had the, the plane on autopilot, so he actually didn't die. Okay. Well Jesus actually died and he rose from the dead. But that but anyways, the point is Jesus took on our sin and he died. And he did that, to, and that process is the process by which our sin is removed. And in a sense, you know, this is a one time thing that we do. We come before God at one point in our lives and we say, Jesus, I want you to take away my sin. I want you to be Lord of our lives. And if you had never done that in your life, I encourage you to consider doing that. But in another sense, in a practical sense, we do this every day. So there is, in a sense, an immediate restoration. So that we are right with God. And then in another sense, there is a gradual restoration in which every day we come before God and we say, you know what? I've sinned again. And this is still tarnishing my life this way. And I need more restoration. And, and so God slowly grows us through that process of, of repentance and faith until the day we are perfectly and permanently restored. So that's the first dimension. We want to eliminate sin in ourselves. And that's where Jesus. Is. Number two, we want to be a part of the process of eliminating sin from our communities, our neighborhoods, our cities, our world. We want to see creation transformed. I love this passage from Zechariah eight, verse twenty. This says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. This says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And that's our vision. Not just that we are transformed, but that the whole world is transformed. That random people who we wouldn't suspect from different nations, different cultures, different backgrounds, they would see the church, and they would see, you know what, I want that too. I sense that God is with this person. I sense that God is with this church. I sense that God is with this community, and I want that too. How does a person enlist as a citizen in the kingdom of God? It is through one inhabitant of one city, saying to another inhabitant of another city, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. It's saying, I am a Christian, I follow Jesus, and here, I want to invite you to do the same. It is the mission of the people of God to invite the world to join the people of God. Because God doesn't just want to heal you, He wants to heal the whole world. So love your neighbors, fight for justice, share your faith, and experience creation transformation. And I want to read, once again, the passage that Nancy read for us, because this is the picture of that creation transformation that we are headed towards, from Zechariah 8. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the street of the city shall be filled, shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Please stand as we pray. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins and for killing our sin once and for all. Thank you that when you died, sin died with it, died with you. God, thank you that the sin that still mars our lives has been taken away. And God, thank you also for rising from the dead so that when we go through this process of trying to restoration, trying to create restoration and we feel futile we feel like giving up we ask ourselves what's the point we can look to the resurrection and we can say that's our hope, that's our security that's our guarantee that my life isn't a waste that my attempts and my efforts aren't a waste that's how I know that true complete, perfect, permanent restoration will will happen God, I want to ask that you would heal us individually. God, some of us, we struggle with sin. Maybe it's a sin in our past. Maybe it's a sin in our present. Maybe it's even a sin in our future. We're just constantly afraid that we will mess up. God, I pray that you would take that away. I pray that you would heal us and eliminate and remove that sin from our lives. And I pray that you would do it by reminding us of the power of the cross. And because Jesus died, we can be free we can be restored into a right relationship with you. And God, I pray that you would heal the world, that you transform this world. God, we live in a community where hatred runs rampant, where divisiveness runs rampant, where racism runs rampant, where inequality and discrimination runs rampant. And God, we need you. We need you to restore our world God, there are so many people who long for restoration and they don't know where to find it. They long to see our school systems better. They long to see our cities safer. They long to see world peace. And they're trying so hard with all these initiatives and all these plans and all these talks and all these conferences to make the world better. God, I pray that you'd use us to help them open their eyes to see that you are the way to restore this world. Thank you that you are making the world a better place. And thank you that you are doing it through the church. I pray that you give us the eyes to see how we can be a part of that process. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.